I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 107. Today on the show, we've got Tim Burnett, the host of the Solo Hunter TV show and an avid Western hunter. And we're talking Western whitetail hunting, self-filming, and much more. Alright, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today, as I just mentioned, we've got a great guest in Tim Burnett who's going to join me to discuss all sorts of stuff including western whitetail hunting, advice for whitetail hunters heading out west for their first big game hunt, thoughts on the impact of social media on hunting, self-filming, and so much more. But before all that, unlike most weeks, we will not be catching up with my co-host Dan Johnson because He's actually out of the office today, I believe, chasing his other passion of competitive dog grooming. So it's just me today and our guest, Tim. But before we get Tim on the line, we do have two quick housekeeping items to mention. First, if you haven't yet checked out our new 100% Wild podcast yet, this is the week to do it. As we just launched a really, really informative episode with Mark Drury and John O'Dell diving deep into all sorts of things related to grunting and rattling and bleeding and, and basically everything you know need to know to call to deer. I think most of you guys remember how awesome our Wired to Hunt podcast was with Mark Drury back last summer. So if you want more of that kind of top shelf advice, you need to check this one out. So be sure to download this new episode. I think it's uh, episode number five of 100% Wild. And you can find that over at wiredtohunt.com on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever it is that you like to get your podcast. Just search for 100% Wild, and please make sure to subscribe to that podcast and leave us a rating or review. That is a huge help. Speaking of that, if you haven't gotten a chance to do it yet, if you haven't been able to leave us a rating or review for the Wired to Hunt podcast, that would be hugely appreciated as well. Now, with all that said, we also need to thank our partners at Sitka Gear for making this podcast possible. As we do every week, we've got a Sitka story to share with you today, and I think 
You're really going to enjoy this one. Today we've got Jess Dalo from De Lorenzo Photography. And several years ago, she had one of those seasons that just grinds on you. You know, hunt after hunt comes and goes, and nothing seems to go right. So when Pennsylvania's final day of their late archery season arrived and had lousy weather, Jess was left with a tough decision to make. And it was super miserable outside. It was raining and cold. And I'm like sitting in my house, just kind of mulling over it and being bummed. And um, I decided I was just going to go out into the garage. I threw on my downpour gear. I grabbed my bow and just kind of headed out to a stand with no plan. And uh, I couldn't think about like the season ending with me just sitting at home, like being a grump over it. <laughs> so then I'm sitting in my stand and I'm just watching the rain. And I'm, I'm still thinking and coming to terms with like having a failed season. And then this like group of does starts coming through and uh, a nice mature kind of doe just like walks and she stops like perfectly in my lane and almost like looks at me like saying like, I'm here. And <laughs> I shot her and she went down right away and it was like just a couple of split seconds. It wasn't like super exciting, but as I'm sitting there waiting to get down, I'm just like, I'm realizing that like, this is why I love hunting because shooting that doe, if I had had a super successful season and like had a big buff already and filled my tags, I never would have really remembered that hunt as something memorable, as something memorable, but for that being the high point in my season, it was just like, this is why I hunt. Like there was so much time put in prior and unsuccessful sits. I had been at full draw on a deer already and it didn't go as planned. And uh, it was just a great reminder that that split second when you shoot a deer is not like, it makes up for all the time that you put in. And I learned so much that year. There's no big mount like that I'm looking at on the wall every time I remember it, it's just the experience and being in the woods and you never kind of know how it's going to play out. And I think that's a huge factor that pulls us in every fall. Like that's why we get addicted because you just never know. And when I get really frustrated when I'm sitting in my stand now, I kind of just always think back on that season and it just reminds me to soak it all in and connect and have fun. And just like, remember that you never know what's going to happen. And it's like, that's the addictive factor for me. I don't know about you, but I can definitely relate to that. Now, as Jess mentioned, she was wearing Sitka's downpour rain gear on that hunt. If you'd like to learn more about what other whitetail gear Sitka has to offer, visit SitkaGear.com. And now, let's get our guest, Tim Burnett, on the line. All right, with me on the line now is Tim Burnett. Welcome to the show, Tim. Hey, Mark. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. How about you? Good, good. It really is. Although I'm I'm in Driggs, Idaho right now, and there are some serious thunderstorms rolling through right now. I, I, you know, I'm not from this part of the country, so I'm used to these storms back in Michigan that just kind of appear over top of you, and then you know it's there for the rest of the day. But I feel like out west here, you see these storms coming for hours and hours, slowly building until they get to you. I don't know. They're they're just visually a lot more exciting than what we have back at home. I don't know if you're just used to it being out west all the time, but I love the storms out here. Yeah, it's it's hard to take the skies for granted because they are so beautiful out here in the west, you know. I mean, it really is just nothing like. I lived in in Oklahoma for for about a year and there's just nothing like the western skies and the just the the skyline and everything. Oh yeah, the, when they talk about like the big sky in Montana or really anywhere in the west, they they aren't lying. There really is something to it. It's true. It's true. Yeah. So, so where are you right now? 
So I'm in Reno, Nevada, sitting in my garage, listening to a bunch of uh, construction going on outside. So hopefully it doesn't interfere with your audio. And- <laughs> oh, no, no problem at all. So far, so far, so good. So I guess before we get too much for- further, Tim, for those who aren't familiar with you, can you kind of give us a little bit of background as to you know, what you're doing today in the world of hunting and, and how you got to be there? Yeah, so in the world of hunting, I'm just hunting. You know, I mean, that's kind of been my mo from the very beginning is all i want to do is is hunt and then document that and figure out some way to to turn that into a career so that i can do a lot more of it so you know i'm just hunting like everybody else whenever i can get a chance and um currently i i produce and host solo hunter which is on outdoor channel um we just we're just now turning in some of the episodes to the network for season seven which is kind of crazy to think about um and then uh just Looking forward to, to this fall. I've already drawn some good tags and just looking forward to doing more of it. Nice. So where uh, where are you hunting this fall? So I'll be in Idaho and Montana, Utah, and then you know we'll see where some of the other draws. I think there's a couple more late draws to come out. Actually, Montana just hit yesterday, maybe today. So i got to find out there. But um, all, all out here in the West. And then I did schedule a trip to go back to Oklahoma with my buddy Stacy Chester. Um, we got a place that we like to go out there. So Nice. Now, how'd your season last year go? Last year was rough. <laughs> it was super. Yeah, I put a lot of effort into it. You know, I wanted to take the, the production value of the show. Um, for those of you that aren't familiar with Solo Honor that have lived in a cave for the last seven years, <laughs> we self-film. Uh, the entire show there's no production crew no cameraman you know no safety outlet any of that kind of thing mark's very familiar with with that type of a format mm-hmm. but we're not we're not necessarily doing it you know it's out west it's western hunting it's big game so there's a lot of a lot of moving and hiking going on and, and not not just in a tree stand or just in a ground blind you know we kind of try to have some diversity with it so it's tough so I put a lot of pressure on myself to film well and hunt well, and I did both extremely well, but I forgot to kill. <laughs> that's that's one important part, I suppose, right? Uh, you know, yeah, I guess, unfortunately. It's, it's all part of it, but um, I've tried to build the show around everything in addition to the killing, so... Yeah. So that it's not everything. It's not the main main point. So how how the show come about? I mean, was it simply the fact that you were just self filming for yourself and eventually realized maybe people would want to see this, or did you come into it and had this idea like I'm gonna make this a show and a business? How did that all begin? Yeah. Uh, so we'll keep the show separate from the business because that's all all developed over time. As far as the show goes, um, when I started in television, actually, it's kind of funny. Um, my old partner called me today. I, when I first started, I, I partnered up with Jeff Danker of Buck Ventures, and he kind of introduced me into to the world of hunting television, and, and you know we had a relationship for a couple of years, did did Buck Ventures for a couple of years, and then I got tired of living in Oklahoma and moved back back out west. So, um, how Solo Hunter came about was I had you know the taste for outdoor television and, and filming my hunts ever since I was a kid. Um, after coming back west, after that stint with, you know, in, in Oklahoma, I was just posting a bunch of my videos because I was filming my hunts solo. I didn't want, didn't have a cameraman or anything. And uh, a group of guys out of Missouri 
um, Jefferson City, Missouri. In fact, I think they still have a show on Pursuit Channel. Um, it's what is it? It's not Back Outdoors now. It's Boondock Boys. Hmm. But at the time, they were Back Outdoors, and they contacted me and said, "Hey, man, we like your videos. Would you be interested in producing our show? We want to go on Sportsman Channel." So, um, long story short, I started producing and ed- just doing the editing and the post production for their show. And they had a their first season on Sportsman Channel. They ended up losing some funding midway through the third quarter. And when that, when they pulled out on that, that left an opening with the network with Sportsman Channel, because I was carrying the contract. So that's the, that's where the business side comes in. I was carrying the contract with the networks because of my connections there and I got left holding the bag you know so I was on the hook for the network fees and uh, it was now or never it was time to to take take the concept of, of solo hunter and, and put it to the test and so I quick edited a, an, an episode together and submitted it to the network and it went to air the following week and uh, you know it was like nothing nothing anyone really had seen at the time I guess so in that that first episode, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't that an Idaho whitetail hunt? Yeah, it was. It was that I had filmed. I actually filmed it that year. So um, this is in September. So if people aren't familiar with the quarters, the way the quarters work, September is kind of the tail end of the third quarter, which is uh, generally when all the new shows go to air. So I had just barely filmed that that episode and so i did some flashback footage of this the year before when i when i filmed some stuff and just cut it together as quick as i could and then at that point it was a bum rush man it was like where can i get some more footage because the network wanted more and and, you know just kind of took off And, and here you are today huh Still in the same spot. Still, the network wants more, and I still have to keep feeding them more. So. <laughs> like you said, though, at least you get to keep on hunting, and uh, this is a good way to to help make that happen. Exactly. You know, there's there's a lot of different ways. In fact, that's one of the things that I've been that I did last year. I've um, produced and hosted a project for G5 and Prime Prime Archery. Um, we kind of did four episodes on featuring some professionals within the archery industry. And there's a lot of different career paths that a guy can take if he wants to be in the outdoors. Um, and the, the video and the hunting television is just one of them. I mean, you've carved out a great niche with what you do with the, with the uh, podcast and the blog and the, the writing and the photography and all that. I mean, you've, you've carved out your niche and, and other people have carved out theirs so there's there's really no guaranteed or no specific path that a person should take there's there's a lot of different avenues right i've always thought it just kind of comes down to figuring out where that intersection of your passion and your skill set where that intersection is and that might be where you can then try to like you said carve out that niche but yeah. trying to force something based on what you see someone else on TV doing or what so-and-so does, that's not always the right way to go about it. But uh, like you said, there's so many different options. It comes down to being passionate about it and just willing to put in a lot of work, I think, right? Yeah, you really got to focus on um, a lot of different things, but the, I think the number one thing is focus on what you're good at. You know, you might have a passion. A guy might have a passion for being on TV or for, for, for whitetails, for instance, or just, just hunting, but if you're not good at it, maybe you ought to focus on, you know, something else, you know, who, who knows? So, uh, you gotta be good at what you do. I think. Yeah. Um, very true. Passion's important, but 
if you're not good, people don't notice passion as much. Very true. And there's, there's a lot of people gunning for that type of gig or that type of opportunity. So you really need to find a way to stand out. It's the most visual, you know, and it's the most appealing to everyone. But I think that's another thing that, that a lot of people don't necessarily realize is, is if you can capitalize and focus on the business side of it or the back end of it, I call it, um, that's really where that's really where the deals are made and that's where things happen, um, you know, where the relationships are struck. The, the television side of the video side of it, I guess, or the end use side of it is, isn't, you know, isn't the nuts and bolts of it, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, like you said, kind of the glamorous end of things, but not, there's a whole lot else going behind the scenes, that's for sure. Sure. So, so going back to something you mentioned just a second ago, that first episode that you put together for Solo Hunter was an Idaho whitetail hunt. Uh, and, and when I saw that, I saw that some time ago, I don't remember, I think it was on your YouTube channel maybe, and that was one of the things that, you know, reminded me that, yeah, Tim does do some whitetail hunts. I've seen you do some stuff in Oklahoma, Idaho, I think maybe Wyoming or Montana, or maybe that was Remy. Um, but, you know, how often do you whitetail hunt? Is that a pretty rare thing, or have you been doing that a long time? You know, I've killed more whitetails than I have any other animal combined. Um, just, it, I didn't start whitetail hunting until I met Jeff, you know, so 2004 or five was when I killed my first whitetail um, out in Oklahoma. And then I've been chasing them ever since. You know, the last couple of years, I've kind of, I guess, last two years, I've kind of tailed it off a little bit. But between 2004 and last year, I, I've killed a, a good buck with my bow every year and a lot of years, multiple bucks. Nice. So where all have you whitetail hunted? Mostly Oklahoma. I've been in, I've been to Illinois. I've been to Missouri. Um, out east. Let's see. You know that's that's pretty well it. If I I can't think of any other place I've hunted in the Midwest, and then of course Idaho, Montana. Nice. I uh, like I mentioned earlier. I think it was before we were on air. I've got my first western whitetail hunt coming up in montana so i'm pretty excited about that and, and was definitely hoping to pick your brain a little bit about what is different you know in this part of the country versus maybe the midwest or the east coast um and i don't know you know given your experience in those different places some of those midwestern states oklahoma and then the farther western rocky mountain states is there anything that stands out to you as pretty starkly different the animals are no different, you know, they still got to eat, they still want to breathe, they still got to survive, you know, and the, the dates might change a little bit, but you're still talking November, you know, and that, so the animals don't necessarily, aren't necessarily any different, but their terrain is, is really what gets you. And, you know, the things that they don't have to deal with out in the Midwest, like thermals and wind change and, you know, because of the mountain range and all that kind of thing, it just makes it a little bit more difficult. And a lot of the, when you talk about public land whitetail hunting out in the West, you're talking big timber too. Um, so it's not necessarily broken up into shelter belts and crops and, you know, river bottoms. A lot of it is just big mountains with that's heavily wooded and you just got to figure things out. Um, there's, there's obviously exceptions in different types of terrain you know in montana there's tons of river bottom and if you've got the ability to hunt you know get access to the river then then great but otherwise you're up on the mountain with the rest of us how gosh i mean that seems like that is so far and away different 
than what a lot of us in the Midwest or different parts of the country are used to, where it's a lot of ag and then these smaller sections of cover, and you can kind of figure out a pretty standard bed-to-feed pattern of what these deer do. How do you go about figuring out what a whitetail is doing in that type of area? Same thing, man. You got to figure out what they're eating at that time. You know, you got to figure out every season is different. You know, it's, it's, when, when I talk to people that don't <clears throat> hunt or are interested in hunting, they're like, well, you bow hunt, but gun hunting must be easy. Well, no, it's gun hunting is just as hard because you're hunting in October, usually when, when it sucks to hunt, you know? So everything changes depending on the area and the time of year, you know? Um, so it's, it's just all, it all varies. Really, at the end of the day, you got to figure out, okay, when is the hunting season? Where do I have access to? What do I got to do to get an animal killed? Yeah. So let's talk early season. Selfishly, because I'm doing an early season Western western hunt. So Since I, comes out. Yeah. Since comes out. <laughs> right? Exactly. So early season, I, I've never, I've done obviously a ton of whitetail hunting, but I've never hunted that first week of September before for whitetails, but that's what I'll be doing in Montana. Have you done some whitetail hunting early September? Yeah, most of the most of the bucks I've killed in Idaho have been before September 6th. So um, that's, that's I love hunting mule deer in the velvet. I love hunting whitetail in the velvet. And that's really kind of the tail end of when they're starting to, to strip and, and all that. But it's, it's, to me, man, that's, that's the best time to kill a big buck is when he's the most vulnerable. And that's, in my experience, uh, outside of the rut, it's when they're in the velvet. Yeah. So, so why do you say that? You know, they're, they're generally, it, that first part of September is tough because it just depends. You know, if they're still in velvet and they're still in their bachelor herds and they haven't got too cranky yet and, and the bucks start to shed, they're still in their food-to-bed pattern, you know, late evenings, early mornings, and they're pretty lazy. You know, they're not traveling great distances because it's still fairly warm. But once that velvet comes off, they're, they're a completely, they start to change, you know. They... You hear it all the time. They become a different animal. The testosterone starts to flow. They start scrapping with each other. They're not, they're not hanging out together nearly as much um, out here in the West once they once they start shedding. You know, it's a little different in, in the places I've hunted in Oklahoma. The bucks will, you'll see bucks running together quite a bit through October. You know, through the middle middle to the end of October, they're running together. But once once they start getting on each other's nerves, it's, it's they're just a different animal. Yeah, yeah. So I'm curious, when you're starting a hunt like that, if, let's say you show up in the area where, gonna, where you're going to hunt, and maybe it's not like right where you live, you don't know these deer you know, inside and out, you're trying to figure it out at that time of the year. My assumption is that it's, it's kind of a start slow, observe for a while, and then make a move. Is that, is that true to form for you, or how do you begin a hunt like that? Do you just dive in, or do you wait and observe? You know, if, if I'm new to an area or new to a specific place, I'll spend I'll spend as much time as I need observing. You know, it's and and just closing in, because if you if you just dive in, you don't know where you're diving into. You might dive into the wrong spot. You know, if you can sit back and find a vantage point. You know, out west there's there's no shortage of vantage points generally, um, depending on where you're hunting. But I'm always I. You know, I guess I'm kind of a cost, uh, passive aggressivist. I like to be very passive at first, but if the op- right opportunity comes, I'm going to dive in. You know, and be really aggressive. So, but as far as for whitetails go, like, like say that that place up in Idaho, for instance. Um, when I first started hunting that area, 
you know, I spent two or three days just glassing from across the canyon. I mean, we're talking a mile away or more, glassing, trying to see where the bucks were, were coming out and, and that type of thing. And then spent another couple of days before I got real aggressive with stand placement, um, sitting up on the field edge, you know, up in the crops, watching these bucks come out to see where they would come out. And then it wasn't until like the sixth or seventh day that I was there that I actually moved in with the tree stand and, and killed a buck on that first night. So how do you know when to write, when, when to make that move for the kill? Is it simply that you've seen a, a buck do something enough times or is it more, I don't know, how do you make that decision to finally go in? I think that time of year, if you see a buck do something once, he's done it before, you know. He's, the buck doesn't travel. I mean, that, whitetail guys know a buck, a buck is where he is for a reason. He's not anywhere ever by accident unless he's been, well, even when he's chased there, he's not there by accident. So it's, they're, they're there for a reason. So if, if he's traveling and it's late August or first part of September and I can see him, you know, working this field edge and, and, and moving into the beans or whatever he might be doing, he's been there before, he's comfortable there, he's probably gonna do it again. Might not be the next night, you know, might not be the next week, but he's probably gonna be there again. Yeah. Yeah. When you're going in to make that setup, how often are you, are you doing a lot of ground hunting from ground blinds or is it always using a tree stand or spot and stock or what are you doing when it comes to whitetails from a, from a positioning standpoint? You know, I, I personally like to be in a tree. I mean, whitetails are made to be killed out of a tree. <laughs> kind of like coyotes are made to be killed with a rifle and turkey <laughs> to be smacked with a shotgun. Uh-huh. You know? It's just the way, the way I see whitetails. I mean, I've had some, some great, uh, encounters and great things from the ground, but there's nothing like there's nothing like doing your homework and scouting the deer and finding them and actually picking the right spot to be in that you can ambush them. You know, it's like you 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 tricked them in a way, and then you're in that stand. I mean, a lot of a lot of Western guys look at it and it's like, well, that's boring hunting, man. You're just sitting in a tree stand. Well, not if you were the guy that figured out that that's where that tree stand needed to be. If if your outfitter put that stand there, yeah, hunting out of a stand sucks. But if you can spend four or five days hunting the area and patterning these deer, then it's stinking awesome. Yeah. And there's no, no better adrenaline rush than that. Just wondering if that buck's going to come out of that little pocket of willows. And then when he does, you know, watching him just shake and, you know, strut on in right underneath you while you got three and a half minutes for your adrenaline to go crazy. I mean, it's, it's freaking <laughs> awesome. I love it. Oh yeah, when they when they actually finally do, you know, follow the script that you laid out. The few times that it works out, it uh, is pretty pretty special feeling. That's for sure. All right. Is there is there any, I don't know, is there a standard way you like to go about setting your tree stands? Are you a guy who likes to be really high, or are you just going where the best cover is, um, or is it, you know, I'm curious to hear about what you're thinking about when you go setting up a stand in a position like that. I set up my stand where the deer is going to be. I don't care if it's in a nine foot cedar or a 30 foot sycamore, you know, if the deer are moving through there, I will find some way to have a stand there or, or to be in that spot. I don't really care. I mean, I've killed deer out of, like I say, literally I could reach up and put my hand on the, the platform of the tree stand, you know, nice. out of the tree in Oklahoma. I've killed them out of the ground, but I've also like that spot in Idaho, you know, that's such a steep, steep angle but at one side you're 15 feet from the ground but you, on the back side of the tree you're 30 man it's 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 it just depends it just depends 
Yeah, you're getting up there. And so it sounds like with the way it's, you're hunting. Disclaimer here, too. I am by no means a whitetail god. You know, right. I mean, <laughs> not the leading authority on whitetail deer. I just like to hunt, and I figured out a way to kill a few of them. That's about it. That's about the best you can ask for from all of us, I'd say. Um, what kind of stand setups are you using? I mean, if you're going in, it sounds like, you know, observing this deer for a while and then making a move with stands, you're probably using some kind of portable setup or climber. What, what do you do from a stand standpoint? Um, lock on. You know, you got you to gotta remember a lot of these places I've already hiked into a couple of miles, you know, sometimes. So just a climber stand that's super lightweight, super small, that enables you also to get into to smaller trees. And, uh, you know, anytime you throw in the filming aspect of it too, that's that's a whole different uh, beast in itself. You know, if, if a guy could just go in on his own and kill, you could get away with, with very minimal trimming and, you know, get in places that you can't get into with the camera. Mm-hmm. Or a cameraman, for that matter. Right, right. So when you're doing these mobile setups, do you... Are you like a middle-of-the-day guy when you like to make your moves? Or, you know, some guys that like to go in after dark and hang a new stand. When are you usually making your move to put up a new stand and, and get situated? Well, so remember, you're talking early season, so midday is always going to be, you know, always going to be a little bit more practical. Midday, early afternoon. A lot of times these bucks will get into a bed, a bed you know, by 8 or 9 o'clock in the morning. Well, they might, they might get up and stretch their legs and go for a drink at noon, too. So you got to be careful, but... Generally, I'm hanging them either, you know, 12, 1 o'clock, or I'm going to go in and hang it at 4 o'clock and stay there. Yeah. You know, go ahead and hunt it. So so speaking of when you're hanging your stands and, and stuff like that and about that midday time period, kind of a, th- a thing that we talk a lot about is hunting mornings at certain times of the year. A lot of us in the Midwest, or at least myself, I, I'm pretty hesitant about hunting mornings early in October during that kind of the early season for us is is early October. Is that something that you're thinking about too in early September about the challenges of trying to hunt in the morning and maybe focusing just on the evening or do you hunt both? Depends on the area. You know, if if you understand your food source and the destination fields where those deer are going to be and if you feel like you can have enough time to get into a stand set, then mornings are are stinking awesome. You know, you see guys like Greg Miller and David Blanton killing deer in the mornings all the time. Um, I've killed deer in the morning, so it it depends on where the where the likelihood that those deer are going to be in the mornings. You know, because if if you're not if you're not hunting the mornings that time of year and you're only hunting evenings, those are some long days. And you're you, especially if you're traveling from out east or anything there, you've just wasted half of your trip, half of your vacation time to hunt half days. I mean, that's. You, you'll figure out a way if you want to hunt you'll figure out a way to get in there whether you're hiking in you know going in at midnight and sitting for six hours in the dark that's up to you it depends on how much you want to kill a deer yeah. you know that, that spot where I, i've killed most of my deer in idaho i know those deer are going to go up into those crops and they're going to crest over the the top and drop down into the destination pocket so i can walk in just you know 30 40 minutes before dark knowing that they're not going to come up out of that out of that other draw until, you know, until I'm already in the stand. Right. Now, what about these situations like the river bottom type habitat, like we were talking about in places like Montana and a lot of other places out west? It seems like, I mean, they're probably bedding in that habitat around the river, right, and then moving up to the crops above. Is that right? Or how are they using that from a bedding versus feeding area? 
Yeah, so it can be. You know, you'll see a lot of times in Montana or Idaho on the, the alfalfa that's right along the river, those deer will bed right in the alfalfa. So unless they're bumped, you know, and have have a reason to have their pattern altered, there's there's no reason for them to go into the wood line and bed. They can bed wherever they want. So they that's where your scouting's got to come into play. You got to watch and see. Crap, are they going to bed right next to that pivot every time so that it's nice and cool and they get water when whatever they want. They can see danger coming from miles away or are they going to work into that wood line and, and lay down right in the crp right on the edge or are they they go in a little deeper to find a little cedar pocket you know you just you don't know you got there's that's the thing is there's they're stinking animals man they're going to do whatever they want whenever they want but the other thing to remember is if you see a buck a big especially a big mature buck somewhere he's there for a reason so you got to figure out why why was he in this spot why was he rounding this bend on that river instead of just walking up over the, the gravel bar into the field, you know? Well, it's because he can scent check three quarters of the field by just working around that gravel bar because of the way the winds are going or something, you know? He, he's there for a reason. Um, and he's, he knows that that travel, that, that travel corridor is safe. And yeah. so that's where early season, when you can actually see them on the hoof, you've got a huge advantage over October or or early November when you may not have laid eyes on them other than just trail cameras. You know? Yeah. Speaking of trail cameras, is that a big part of your strategy usually? No, not generally. Um, it is in Oklahoma where, um, you know, where you, you know, you're, you've got a property, you've got boundaries, you know, you've got, you've got your area and you've got to figure out those deer and pattern those deer. So cameras are a lot more important to me there. Out west, um, you know, in the, in the spot like that spot in Idaho, I have those deer figured out so well, and, and I still put out cameras, you know, to, to kind of see what's what's there. But if I'm going to a new area or something, I, you know, I, I generally am traveling there, and I'm, I'm limited on time, and so I, I'll spend that time scouting. And you know, if I can throw out a camera, I will. But I, I don't, I don't put a lot of weight into it because because I may or may not be have any connection to that spot you know i might not be going back or i might have just happened onto it randomly right right you got a short amount of time to utilize those pictures that so doesn't always end up panning out that's that's worth probably the time right yeah if, i mean you know if i if i'm going into montana or to somewhere and I, I bust in there and start hanging cameras where i think the travel corridor will be a, you know you it, I, I feel like unless you um have the time or have uh, are going to be hunting that area for years on end, you know, or multiple years or whatever, then cameras make sense. But if you've got one week and you're on vacation from, you know, Albany, New York, and you're in Montana on public land, um, just get in there and hunt, man. Don't waste your vacation time hanging cameras. Find glass, find the deer and, and hunt because, you know, I don't know. That's my opinion. For a guy from Albany, New York, like you said, or somewhere like that, do you think a whitetail trip out west is worth it? I mean, is there something special? Like, should somebody experience a western whitetail hunt versus anywhere else? Heck yeah. Just just like a western guy needs to experience a midwestern hunt or an eastern hunt. You know, I mean, if, if you are an advocate for hunting, why would you limit yourself to only hunting elk and mule deer out here in, in the west? You know, I mean, if you really want to experience for yourself what whitetail hunting is rather than just you know talking smack about whitetail hunters in the bar and how tree stand hunters are lazy and don't know how to hunt they're not real hunters 
Go out there and do it for your damn self and figure it out, man. Mm -hmm. You'll figure out that if you're actually hunting those animals and not just paying a fee to go with an outfitter to hang to sit in a stand that he his guy hung six years ago and it worked for one guy six years ago, so it's going to work for you this year, then that's that's not hunting. You know, that's a different type of a hunt. It's for different people. But yeah. if you're a hunter and you want to hunt. You know, you got to experience what we have to offer here in in America, man. There's some good stuff. Yeah, I've really come to enjoy the different types of terrain too that offer these different challenges and just different experiences. You know, from hunting where I live here in Michigan to then going out to in Iowa or Nebraska, and now I'm excited to take it, you know, a little step further to see, you know, a very different landscape in Montana. And I feel like there's something to be said about just experiencing those different types of hunts and everything that goes with it you know it may not be the the most hyped place compared to iowa or kansas where the the you know quote-unquote giants live but i think just having a diverse set of experiences kind of rounds you out as a hunter and i think just is a lot of fun too don't you think it can you know it's, it's all up to the individual you know i i'm a huge believer that a guy's got to do what he what he is passionate about what he wants to do you know don't feel forced to hunt the way other people hunt just because other people are having success you know i mean if if you're not gonna have you know like like my buddy jeff that i was just talking about jeff dinker he he has no desire to go up and hike around the high country at thirteen thousand feet and chase a mule deer just not fun to him you know but if that's not fun, you don't do it, you know? So it's, it's all, that's the beautiful thing about hunting is it's, it's an individual sport, you know, or, or it's an individual lifestyle, an individual mm-hmm. activity, and you got to do it to whatever's going to make you happy, you know? Yeah. So what, what makes you happy hunting? What's your favorite hunt? What's your favorite type of species to hunt in place? You know, velvet mule deer in August. That's really kind of velvet mule deer in August, and then rolling into elk in September. I mean, that's that is hunting for me. You know, that's kind of where it's at. But I like to experience new things too. You know. Yeah. Any certain state that is, is your home state, Nevada, your favorite spot for that type of velvet hunt, or whereabouts? Yeah, Nevada for mule deer definitely because the hunts start August tenth. They used to start August first, um, but August tenth you can roll in and. And find those bucks in about as vulnerable state as they'll ever be, um, and, and get in and hunt them. The, the difficulty, the challenge is getting a tag, you know. Um, and then elk in Idaho, just because that's where I grew up. That's home. Nice. So last year, me and my my co-host, who's usually on the show with me, we were planning a early season high country mule deer hunt in Idaho, um, and just because of some funky things going on we had to change our plans but going into that you know we were trying to figure out all sorts of stuff about how to do a hunt like that that's nothing either one of us have ever done i've done some elk hunting but not that kind of early season mule any kind of mule deer hunt really what what is it about that type of hunt that you like so much i guess i'm curious about first well that's what i grew up doing you know i mean i lived out in this in an area that's about as wild as it possibly gets and we grew up going up to those high mountain lakes and fishing and seeing all these big deer you know running around so it's only natural to want to go back but um you can't you can't beat you know hiking in six seven eight miles into the to the high country and spending time up in the high alpine watching deer and elk and mountain goats and bighorn sheep i mean that's the that's what western hunting is yeah it's uh 
it sure seems to put you put yourself in a position to see some incredible places and animals and just i mean probably a tremendous challenge but worthwhile i, I bet yeah yeah i mean if, if you're into that kind of thing and like like i say you gotta most of the guys that have uh, that are that are hunters and that want to explore and do those things will just eat it up they would love getting up into new country and i mean you would love it getting up high and, and just figuring things out you know um so what, what's a what's a a hunt like that look like? Are you just figuring out a basin you want to get into, getting up high and glassing a lot until you find the deer you're after, and then making a move, or do you start low and glass up? How does that kind of pan out? So um, it just depends on the type of hunt that it is, you know, or where it's at, you know. So so if you're if you're are you speci- if you're specifically talking about say if uh, a mule deer hunt the first week of September you know high country mule deer hunt mm-hmm. yeah you're gonna get up into those high basins you know find where the water source is and the food source at that time and get up as high as you can and do as much scouting as you can on Google Earth and just looking at the area figuring it out once you experience and spend I mean experience is the greatest teacher one year when you're up there with those animals year in and year out, you kind of figure out where they're going to be, whether it's a mountain range in Idaho or a mountain range in Utah. The habits are going to be very similar. You know, you're going to look for those those pockets. You're going to look for the, the bitter brush. You're going to look for those things that, that experience has taught you that those, the places that those deer like to be, you know. Um, that's really, that's really kind of, kind of how high mountain hunting is. Um, there's no guarantees and nothing is the same yeah can you elaborate a little bit about what those types of areas look like i mean you know in my situation last summer i spent a lot of time on google earth looking at these mountain ranges and you know taking things i've read and trying to apply it to this this aerial i'm looking at and saying okay i see this pocket here and this but it's kind of hard to translate that into what it's actually like on the ground what what does good mule deer habitat look like in the high country you know, it could be, it could be wide open, just tundra looking stuff right up in the top of the shale. You know, um, we watched one, when my brothers and I growing up, we watched one buck that would basically live in the shale and then he would work his way around and park his butt under one, one little lone sage tree. I can't even remember what the heck the tree was like out in the middle of nothing. And he just spent his life doing that, but you couldn't kill him because you couldn't approach him. So he obviously had figured that out. So um, where I hunt a lot in Idaho, it is a little bit more open. You know, it's, it's not as dense as what you might find in Montana, the high country of Montana and, and some of those areas that are heavily wooded. So it's, it just depends on the area. Um, I always look for some open basins, high basins, a lot of water, a lot of feed. And there's generally going to be deer in there, you know? So is it, <laughs> I guess I'm, I'm the worst teacher. Cause I'm, I'm just like, I'm just like a guy that wants to go out and hunt, you know, <laughs> and I've been doing it since I was 10, 12 years old. So to try to explain what the terrain looks like, because the terrain on one side of the mountain is going to be entirely different to the other side, you know, That's just, so true. It's, I'm, it's very asking, much. I'm asking you impossible questions, but <laughs> Nah. I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying what I can take from this. I mean, there's, there's so much, what I love about 
hunting new places, whether it's a western whitetail hunt or a mule deer hunt or elk hunts or whatever. I, I love that process of discovery, like that process of trying to figure it all out. And even even in just a whitetail hunt in a new place, just trying to figure out a new property like we were talking about. I mean, that's kind of that chess match that you mentioned that's so cool when you can slowly start to put the pieces together, figure out one thing today and another thing tomorrow and keep on adjusting, whether it be a tree stand or whether it's where you're you know, glassing. It's pretty cool when you can slowly accrue all that information, right? And then finally see it pay off in some kind of way. That's, that's for me, what gets me so fired up. Yeah. Here's the thing. If if you're in a decent area that holds animals, you're going to find animals where you're hunting, you know? So if you were hunting the low, the low foothills, you're going to find animals in the low foothills out West. I guarantee it. Are they going to be exactly what you want? Maybe, maybe not, but you're going to figure out how to hunt them there. You might take that same exact mountain range and go up to the top. You're probably going to find deer up at the top too. And they're going to be acting, you know, the same as those down the bottom. It's just the terrain's a little bit different. So it's, it's just, you got to adapt to where, to the area where you're at. You know, you don't necessarily have to adapt to the species as much. Cause like I say, animals want to eat, drink, breed and be merry, you know, and survive. Very true. So for a, for a whitetail guy, let's say, that's listening right now that lives in the East Coast or South or the Midwest or something like that, that wants to go out for their first Western hunt, what would you recommend as far as species, location, anything like that for like a first-timer going West? What do you think would be a good first-time trip? You talking a do-it-yourself guy or a guy that's looking to have some help? You know? I, I, I'm interested in DIY. I think, I think most of our guys are DIY. Yeah, so you figure out where you can obtain a tag. You know, are you going to have to put in for a draw? Are you going to be able to go to a state that you can buy it over the counter? You know, so that's you got to figure that out. Once you once you narrow that down and say, okay, I'm just going to I I don't want to start building points. <coughs> Excuse me. You figure that out and you say, okay, well, I, I need to have the flexibility to buy a tag over the counter. So that narrows you down to Idaho, you know, or wherever. Once you get that figured out, you say, okay, which area, you know, have you heard that is good hunting or which areas are the tags good for? You figure out your area and then then you pull up Google Earth and just go to scouting, uh, you know, spend hours and hours just looking at the maps, figuring out where water may be, um, you know, if that time of year, is there going to be, is there going to be snowpack in there? I mean, are you going to? So you just, you just kind of do all your scouting, pre-scouting and everything with Google Earth. And uh, that's the beautiful thing, I guess, about social media and the beautiful and bad thing is there's somebody out there that knows something about almost every area and somebody out there that's willing to, to talk about every area. So there's a lot of uh, networking going on and networking opportunities to figure, to get more information. Yeah. Do you have a hard time with that? Do you have a lot of people reach out to you saying, where are you hunting in that episode? Or where should I go specifically for this trip or that trip? Is that something you have to deal with a lot? Yeah, and I think I think a lot of that comes from the younger crowd that just really haven't figured out the ethics behind social media yet, you know, um, or just, just value of someone's time in general. So a lot of that comes from kids. And so, you know, you, you kind of feel that out and, and decide if you want to take the time to, to help them out a little bit or if you just ignore it, you know. And I hate to say that I, that I ignore things, but there's, there's doing what I do, there, it's 
the questions and comments are not in short supply. Let's right. put it that way. <laughs> so you gotta, you know, I, I pride myself on responding to as many questions as I possibly can. And I'm sure I don't get nearly as many as a lot of guys do. But um, at the end of the day, we're all on the same team and I want to see someone succeed. But that's when I get those questions and that more times than not, it's, you know, a teenager or, you know, a younger kid that just, just hasn't quite, you know, figured out the ethics, I guess. Mm -hmm. right. They don't know how to ask. I think, you know, so I don't know. Yeah, yeah. So, so one more thing for the first timer. Is there a species that you think is the best first time Western hunt species? Is is elk the way to go with the first time for most guys? If you had to give a generic answer, or I don't know, what's what do you think is the best beginner Western animal to go for? Uh, it depends on how adventurous the beginner is. You know, I mean, if you if you're looking to just not to just have an experience of a lifetime right out of the gate, go elk hunt. In middle of September, it doesn't get any better. Even if, even if you don't lay eyes on a single animal, the sounds that you're going to hear and the, the places that you're going to get into will be enough of an adventure for your first time that, that you'll want. You'll be addicted and want to go back year after year. So, so yeah, I 100% agree. From my experiences chasing elk, does that ever get old? Because I'm I, this will be my fourth year, I think, coming up elk hunting, and so far it hasn't gotten old for me. But for you, who's grown up with it, is it still as good as it was in the beginning? Yeah, I'll still spend three weeks chasing elk. I, I mean, <laughs> and that's that's the beauty of you know, the I guess the approach that I take to hunting. Yeah, it's it's my job now, or it's a big part of my job now. But I've always taken the approach to hunting just like I would if if I was you know, a school teacher. I still want to just enjoy the wild and I want to experience the animals as much as I can. So my, I, I feel like my mentality isn't much different than it would be otherwise. Um. Interesting. Yeah. It's uh, there really is something to be said about just being out there and soaking it all in. And I, I wonder, you know, for me, one of the challenges I've kind of gone through, you know, from just being a hunter, and then eventually starting to film my hunts and worrying about trying to capture on film and do all the other things that go into it. And sometimes there was a kind of a level of like burnout where I was just not enjoying the hunt as much as I should have been because I was too worried about the production of something or producing quote unquote, trying to get whatever it was I was trying to get. Have you ever felt that? Has that ever been something you've had to deal with? Yeah, that's, that's our fault. You know, that's our choice. We, we've chosen to, uh, in, in order to have the careers that we have, we've chosen that uh, that uh, handicap, you know, in a lot of ways. But I think you got to remember, too, is the majority of the guys that are listening to this podcast or the majority of hunters out there in the country are not they're not screwing around with cameras because they're smarter than we are. You know? <laughs> yeah. If you, if you almost have to, and that's one of the things that I've kind of learned over, over the years with Solo Hunter is, is there are there's there's the the following or the fan base that are hunters that are into the hunting part of it. And then there's the fan base and the following that's, that's addicted to the filming side of it too. So I'm, I'm just assuming, you know, in this conversation that these guys are just wanting to go out and hunt and experience hunting. They're not out there to necessarily, you know, document their hunt on camera and, and film and all that. Because if, if you're wanting to come out West for the first time and, film this awesome self-filmed hunt you know solo hunt man you're in for a 
beast of a challenge right there. <laughs> it's, it's different than, than self-filming a hunt out of a tree stand, I can promise you. Yeah. So, so that's where guys like you and I have to kind of keep that separation or, you know, that not everybody's out there to film, but a, a lot of our, you know, our specific fan base are out there to film. Yeah. So for those guys, because I don't know what you've seen, but I definitely think over the years I've seen more and more hunters want to pick up filming you know not for necessarily a show or something but just they want to have that footage for themselves to look back at or to show their friends or maybe to start their own thing for those types of people um i don't know what's what would you do you have any advice for that type of person who wants to get started self-filming what what do you tell people that want to get started with that kind of thing to do it man i mean if, if that's what you want to do then then figure out um you have to have an end goal in mind and not necessarily end goal as in, I want to be a TV guy, you know, or I want to have, I want to produce a DVD or one of this, have an end goal with what your hunt looks like when, when you get home, what do you want that video production to look like? And then that's how you kind of work backwards and go into it that way. Because if you, if you just say, I'm just going to film my hunt and you don't have a format or a platform to showcase that format, and you're going to go out there, see a huge bull elk go over the ridge, and that camera's staying in the truck, you know, and you're just going to go and hunt. You have to have, when, if you're going to make that commitment to film, film it with a purpose and with an end result in mind, because otherwise you're just going to have a bunch of footage that's going to frustrate you. Yeah. And probably an empty truck bed. <laughs> exactly. What, uh, what's your self-filming setup look like, if you're willing to share that? No, you bet. You bet. I need to do, I get that question, honestly, probably about three or four times a day on the various social media platforms and emails. <laughs> I need to just do a video, but it's hard because I, I only have one video camera. So for me to do a video of, of my camera equipment is kind of counterproductive. I can't do it. It's a little know? tricky. <laughs> it's a little tricky because, I, you know, my wife's like, well, why don't you just buy another camera? I don't know. <laughs> I just have never done it. I need to do it, whether I borrow Remy's camera or whatever. But I um, I personally use a DSLR camera, and I have one GoPro, and that's basically it. Every once in a while, I'll haul a second GoPro for my he head cam or helmet cam, but the last, I've kind of gotten away from that a little bit too. Um, so mostly just with a DSLR and a, and a GoPro, and I don't necessarily recommend a DSLR you know a video camera is much easier to film with yeah, so why are you using a DSLR I like the creative control I guess I'm a control freak um, no I like to have the ability to from a producer's standpoint change up the look and f the, the overall feel of of a situation you know if 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 the situation is real intense, you know, and I've just missed a bull elk at 30 yards and I'm really kind of pissed off, I'm going to throw, you know, a nice, nice cinematic lens on there with good solid depth of field and I'm going to talk to it. And it's amazing what that can do to a production just by changing up the overall look of a lens, you know, or a shot. You crunch, you crunch in that depth of field or you, you open it up. It changes things completely, and so I've learned as a producer. That's that's my second passion outside of hunting is producing. That if I can change some of those things, it's it really just adds to the dramatic effect, yeah. without having to do anything different, without having to create drama. All I'm doing is filming it a different way. 
Now, one of the things I've always thought about filming hunts with a DSLR that's got to be so challenging is the fact that you are a little bit more limited with the fact that you might need to be changing lenses or, you know, in some cases you'll have a deer at 10 yards and then you might have something at 120 yards and unless you've got a mega zoom lens, you might need to be switching things out and changing things up. I mean, is that is that a huge hassle? Is that something you deal with? Well, yeah. Of course, whether you're filming with a DSLR or you're filming with a video camera, your hunting habits have to change for you to be successful. If you're hunting the same way you would um, with a camera as you would without the camera, you're not gonna you're not gonna get into position to kill that deer on camera on film. I promise you. I mean, if, if I'm elk hunting by myself, I'm as aggressive as it gets, and I'm chasing those elk down and getting in their pockets, and you're going to the animals. Well, to, to self-film your hunt, that's pretty counterproductive. To self-film, it's a lot easier to, to set up an ambush situation and have the animals come to you because you can control it. You can actually film it and have that animal unpressured and you know not aware that you're there and have a lot better opportunity to take your hand off the camera, grab the bow, and, and shoot. So just by filming alone, your hunting, your hunting strategy changes either way. With a DSLR, it's more hands-on. You got both hands on there trying to focus and zoom and all that kind of junk. And it just, it's an added challenge for sure. Yeah. Now, are you usually running that DS, excuse me, your DSLR on a tripod? Or I've seen you sometimes with what looks kind of like a souped up selfie stick almost with the DSLR close to you and then looks like maybe a GoPro higher above that shooting down at you. What's that setup look like? So the the, video, the camera's always on a tripod, just with a fluid head, and then I've just kind of fashioned my own little, it's a broken shooting stick is what it is, and I just slid over the top of the, on, on all, on all the, the fluid heads or the tripod heads, they have the handle, you know? Yep, yep. So I just cut off the, the rubber off the handle and slid this shooting stick over the back of that that's about two and a half feet long. And then I just attach my GoPro to the end of that. And it kind of gives a nice over-the-shoulder look. You can see the camera. And if you're lucky, you can see the elk or the deer or the animal with the GoPro. You know, But you can kind of see you can see the action that's going on as a self-filmer. Yeah. What about in your tree stand hunts? Are you rocking a camera arm or something like that too? Yeah, always a camera arm. Yeah, stability is a key. So I, have a, I use a muddy or I'll use a third arm. It just depends on where I'm at. Um, and then just a GoPro, that's the cool thing about being stationary, you know, if you're out of a tree stand or a ground blind, it's, you can put GoPros wherever you want. I mean, I saw a picture with you, you must have had seven or eight GoPros wrapped around. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't, that wasn't too functional of a setup. But <laughs> I, I try to keep it simple. I've learned, you know, as a producer, there's, there's a, an easy way and there's a hard way. And if you keep it easy and just fix everything in post, then that's... Yeah, and I, I personally end up with a better result than trying to run three or four cameras at a time. Yeah. So what about that first-time self-filmer? i got to believe you get this question a lot where someone's like, hey, what's, what camera gear should I get to get started? Do you have a basic setup that you recommend from camera to tripod to whatever else I need? I do. I'm working on – I've been working on it for years, or for last – actually but there's there's a lot of inexpensive hd cameras out there i think one's the canon hv i mean i started out on the s20 or s21 mm-hmm. i first started with solo on her and, but there's like an hv40 or something that's a nice little 900 dollars or a thousand dollar camera shoots great footage um you know is perfectly capable of a television show quality as long as your lighting and audio is good but 
and you can go all the way up from there, you know. Um, Remy and I both, uh, for the last two years, have been shooting exclusively 4K footage, so that that gives us a lot more flexibility in post. Um, but again, it has its own set of challenges too. Yeah, you get some big files then, huh? Big files, yeah. yeah. Big files. <laughs> but you know, I, I like I. I, that's the challenge with Solo Hunter is, is we could overproduce it and, and polish it up to the point to where it's not practical, not believable, or we can keep it raw and yet still try to have the best video quality we can. Yeah. What do you think is the biggest mistake that most people make when trying to film a hunt, whether it's something you've done or something you've heard other people do? Is there anything common that a lot of people are screwing up? They're not filming enough to tell um, a fully cohesive story, to show the story. You know, I mean, you can tell a story all you want, but if, if you can show that and what happened on camera, that's, that's to me, where most people, it's not, I don't, I wouldn't call it a mistake. It's just a challenge that they haven't figured out yet. You know, so say for instance, if I, if I'm talking to the camera, I want to give myself four, five, six or more reference shots to reference what I just said you know and most people most guys are going to see an elk up on the ridge film the elk they're going to turn the camera they're going to say hey man there's a big freaking elk up on the ridge I'm going to go chase it down and then they're going to go and the next shot you see is is them up on the ridge well how did you get there you know what what else did you see what was the wind doing you know did you have your pack on or off just all those little things that don't matter to the hunt but it it matters to the post-production matters to the end result as far as the video goes mm-hmm. and that's those are typically the toughest shots to get because they require you take that extra time to you know go over these extra things and when you really just want to be hunting like we've been talking about it takes a certain amount of like mental toughness or like dedication to actually get those extra shots that set up the scenes and different things like that uh, you've got to know when to hunt and know when to produce you know and if you can do both combine those together half decent then you can you can end up with a TV show called Solo Hunter on Outdoor Channel. You know? <laughs> now, here, here's a question, Tim. How many animals' lives have been saved because of the fact that you've been trying to film? <laughs> a lot. <laughs> You'll see this year there's there's quite quite a few. I'm, I'm actually cutting together right now episode four and five, which is my Idaho elk hunt. And those two episodes combined, um, I passed on a lot of bulls because I was on some some really unique elk and big big bulls that I wanted but I missed one two three four five five times in five times yeah and it's just it's it's just I have no no excuse man no excuse how do you how, this kind of takes us to a whole other topic, but it's one that I think every hunter can relate to or will someday, whether they missed because in your situation, you know, trying to do a lot of different things and filming and everything or whatever else. How do you handle something like that mentally when you miss a deer or an elk or an animal? What's your kind of mental process for moving past that? The first time you miss a trophy class animal, you're going to, it'll tear you up. I mean, it'll eat you up. But then after you do it again, you'll realize it happens. You know, I, I just feel real bad for the guys that miss like a 200 inch whitetail, you know, or, <laughs> yeah. or hit them poorly and, and, and don't recover them and those kind of, that's, that hurts a lot more. But when you're just a regular Joe Schmo hunter like me and you're not out there hunting for inches and it's only, a, you know, a, a six by six, it's not a giant or whatever, you can't, you can't beat yourself up over it. But that's the other side of the coin too. I've been hunting since I was, you know, forever, 
and have I've I've been fortunate to have a lot of opportunities to both kill and to to miss. So it's it's easier for me. I I realize there's a lot of guys out there that um, you know shoot. I've never shot a Pope and young whitetail, whether it's it's because of where they live or where they've had the op, had the lack of opportunities of places to hunt um, or are new to hunting or whatever. But everybody's situation is completely different, so their uh, their initial reaction is is going to be a little bit different, you know. Um, so you you have to learn to control it in, in your way, you know. I, I've missed enough times now and had enough frustrations that it's, I just laugh and move on. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of what you have to do at some point. Do you, do you still get buck fever of any kind? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Totally. I mean, with honestly, the cameras kind of have alleviated that a lot because I, I have to put my mind on the camera. Um, so that's, that's helped with, with buck fever, but you know, I still get it. I still get it. I can't say that I got it last year ever. I think I was just, uh, but yeah, yeah. I mean, if you lose that excitement, you're, you're, you don't have a pulse. Yeah, exactly. What, what situation or animal hits you the hardest in that way? What, what experience will get your blood flowing, the heart beating the fastest, make you lose your mind the most? I think the animal that makes me lose my mind the most and that gives me, that has given me the most buck fever um, in my hunting life is white-tailed deer, you know. Right. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that um, they're, they're, just, they're just different. Like, I don't know, they're just like hunting jackrabbits. You just don't know. Even if you got that buck on trail camera coming out of that corner of the cornfield into the, these, the soybeans or whatever the, the scenario might be, he never does it until like the ninth day in or whatever, or the third year. in. the next thing you know, you, you, you take a look to your left and there's that buck standing there. And you're like, that buck's not supposed to be standing there because he hasn't <laughs> been for the last six years. And then they just have that ability of, of creeping up on you for, for me personally. And maybe that's because I've been around big mule deer and big elk more than big whitetails. But um, they just, I don't know. For some reason, like my adrenaline just gets pumping when I see a big whitetail because you're not supposed to see a big whitetail. Yeah, there's to be reclusive. You know? When it, when they finally do show up, it's it's such a culmination of all that planning, all that time waiting. I think that might be part of it for me too. Is that, you know, while some might view it as a negative of whitetail hunting, the fact that there's a lot of sitting and waiting, I think all that anticipation kind of lends itself to that climactic moment being so intense when it actually does appear and it all goes the way you planned it's there's a whole lot leading up to it that makes it kind of a crazy moment well put it this way when i when i'm chasing a, a bull out that i've found you know a big bull like i found this year i found a big bull i could go up on hundred thousand private acres of, of public land and i could find that bull within a, a day or two you know you could take a, a 180 inch whitetail or a 200 inch whitetail or a 130 inch mature buck for that matter put him on a six acres or six acre farm and you might not see him for ever yeah that's just the way whitetails are and so to me that's what's so intriguing about them is and you don't know if, if a buck's going to travel 20 miles during the rut to your property from mark drury's property mm -hmm. you just don't know so that's that's the cool thing about whitetail but for big mule deer and elk generally if they're in the area in the wide in the big country you're, you got a good chance of finding him yeah 
I think uh, you probably have a much better chance of finding them than I do because I'm still not quite at that point yet. (laughs) But I'm learning. Sets your expectations in the right place, you know. I mean, I I don't. I'm I'm not an inch. I'm not a a, an inch hunter. I don't. I don't really care if I see a deer and the and the the siren goes off, then I'm chasing it. You know what? No matter what the score. But I know guys that'll sit and just analyze deer with the spot and scope and and just count inches and everything, and they have their goals in mind, and that's great for them. But you know, by the time they decide they're going to pass on that deer, he's that deer's already in the back of my truck. Yeah. Pull the trigger. Is there uh, is there any certain deer hunt, while well, we're kind of talking about whitetails again, is there any whitetail hunt that you've had that stands above all the rest that kind of sticks, sticks with you for some reason? Do you have any specific story that is your top deer story? Um, I mean, I've had a lot of really good experiences hunting whitetails. I mean, I've had, uh, you know, one buck several years ago in Illinois. Probably this is the only time I've ever hunted with a, with an outfitter, and it's probably be the last unless I'm chasing a mountain goat or a bighorn sheep or something. But, you know, there was a buck in there that, that uh, came out under the tree stand that was 70 yards, 80 yards in front of me, top you know, over the top of a doe, and he had an 11-inch drop tine, and when they ended up killing him the week later, he scored 211 inches and just... Wow a beast of a buck and here we have all this awesome video footage of this deer you know sd video footage which is too bad but and and everybody chasing that so that was that was a good experience you know i mean had a another huge buck in in illinois so those kind of stand out but for me for my whitetail experiences my favorite thing in the world is going to oklahoma and hanging out with my buddies at the lodge you know we've got this this place up in Northwest that, that my friend Stacy's put together and we go out there and just hang out and have a good low key, you know, low pressured time. And, and that, that to me, that's what whitetail hunting is for me. You know, elk hunting and mule deer hunting is a lot more serious, a lot more intense and a lot more, you know, a lot different. But when I, when for me, whitetails is just the relaxing mind game type of a type of a hunt hanging out with my buddies because i can you know yeah there's something to be said about that camaraderie aspect to a hunt that doesn't require you to be thirteen thousand feet up on a ridge versus being able to sit back at camp and and grill something up and drink a beer and catch up i think a lot of people are like the idea of western hunting and like the idea of of spending time at at, you know over ten thousand feet and all that but at the end of the day, the reality is it's difficult, it's tough, and it's brutal, and, and there are times that it's not fun, but um, there's something that drives you to do it, you know, and, and I think everybody should experience it once or twice, um, but that's where, you know, different strokes for different folks, they say. Yeah, yeah, I, I 100% agree. That's something that, you know, since I've started heading out west to hunt, I've been coming back and telling all my whitetail buddies, hey, you, you really should try at least once just experience that because like you said it's so different in so many different ways and while it can be incredibly challenging in a lot of ways and tough and it's not always hunky-dory fun i think uh there's a powerful set of experiences that you can only get on that type of thing that type of hunt that uh like you said different strokes for different folks but if you ever thought about it i would highly recommend trying it yeah, if you're if you're an adventurous guy, go after the adventure. You know, I mean, don't just limit yourself to and you and if you have the ability to, don't limit yourself to just just one thing because you, it looks hard. You know, it, it it's not you're you're hunting for a reason. There's no guarantee that you're gonna see see a 
a trophy buck, let alone kill one. You know, you got to be prepared to eat some tag soup and go home empty-handed. You're, you're going out there for the adventure. You're not going out there to, to fill the freezer. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I've I've definitely had to adopt that mindset because uh, I've three out of four times I've eaten my tag, so, or two out of three <laughs> or something like that now. So, uh, you know, out west, the, the you know, the, the archer's success is well under 10%. Right. You know? Yeah, I don't know if I want to keep going out here because right now I'm above average. But uh, if I keep moving out, my, <laughs> I might go downhill. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's because there are so many of us hunters that are at different uh, skill levels or at different levels in their, their lives or their careers and or their desires, you know. And that's the beautiful thing about it is hunting is such an individual uh, relationship with you and God and, and nature mm-hmm. that you have to get out of it what you want out of it and what you're willing to put into it because you can't look at what somebody else is getting and expect to get that same result unless you're working or unless you're putting in the same effort as that person. Yeah. And I think that's one of the it's interesting bringing that up. I mean, that's one of the there's a lot of great things about the media, the hunting media, you know what you do, what I do, what all these other guys sharing our experiences or lessons learned and things. There's a lot of great things we can do, but I think one of the unfortunate kind of side effects of that is that you do get a lot of people watching or reading or listening and, you know, like you just said, they assume that they should be able to get the same results or see the same thing or have the same experience, but there's a lot of different variables. There's a lot of different factors that go into whether or not you will have that experience if you can have that experience and unfortunately i think that affects expectations a lot i mean you're only seeing you don't post when you have a bad day i mean you're only seeing the what people want you to see Mm -hmm. you know there's a lot of unrealistic expectations out there because of social media um i'm a i'm a huge fan of what it does and what it can do for for a person and for their career and what it's done for mine but at the end, at the same token, I'm a huge proponent that social media is bad for the industry too. I mean, everything everything against hunters, um, the avenues there because of social media, and it's it creates this opportunity for for people to not show hunting how it needs to be shown, you know, and how what it means to me. I mean, it, it means it's something different for everyone, but. Social media is going to ruin hunting. There's, there's, it's, it's been a great thing for it and for the, the brands and the businesses that that uh, can grow and experience growth because of it. But at the end of the day, it's my prediction that social media is what's going to cause division between, uh, you know, hunters and, and peoples and different things because it's not a true and clear picture of what reality is. It's a true and clear picture of what. Mark Kenyon and Tim Burnett want people to assume their the, the reality of their lives are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's a lot of things about the, the implications of social media that are concerning, whether it be within the hunting world, like you just said, that kind of thing, like creating false expectations or stuff like that, or on the other side, you know, like the types of issues we've had here where non-hunters catch wind of a photo or something that someone posted on social media that maybe is in bad taste or you know when you don't know the context of it it seems really concerning to people on the other side of the aisle or whatever and then you see that kind of stuff blow up into this huge anti-hunting media storm and there's a lot of that stuff that that concerns me that's for sure there's a lot of people in that, that are a lot bigger than me in the industry that are just out there looking for a fight and they need to just not be looking for a fight because a lot of people, I think, think that because someone makes, you know, some anti-hunter posts 
on you know makes a comment on their post that it's a badge of honor no you just stirred up a fight that didn't need to be there you know um i i don't understand the 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 constant need for attention that social media has driven people to if i didn't have to do it um you know for for my business and for my career i probably wouldn't um i enjoy it i enjoy the interaction with people and with my with the partners that i work with but um you know it goes against my personality and and you know but it's it's here it we, we have to just do our best to represent ourselves and the sport of hunting in the right way and if that means you know sending a private message to a, a teenager that's posted a, a a distasteful photo and 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 things and just you know giving them your opinion and hoping that they respect that then that's what that means because it's it's our place to teach the younger people um coming up into this this industry you know some of the ropes that we've learned learned over the years there's a lot of stuff on there that man it just makes me cringe and uh i voice my opinion on things like a bear being killed with a spear and different things and and had my my butt kicked for that but you know, there's things that you don't believe in. And if we don't say anything, who will? Yeah, I, I 100% agree with you. And I think there's a lot of people, you know, there's a lot of this. Uh, I mean, there's, there's, it's hard to know what's what anymore these days, because there's a lot of people that say, you should not be criticizing or, you know, raising concerns about other hunters, because you are trying to, you know, divide hunters, we shouldn't be dividing each other, we should be supporting each other 100% in every way, because there's so many other people outside of the hunting community that are attacking us anyways. But on the other hand, to your point, if we don't police our own in a respectful, you know, considerate way, we're also opening ourselves up to a lot of other issues. I think when there's someone poking holes in the boat, I don't, I'm not going to let the boat flood, I would, I think you need to plug that if you can and, and try to fix it in a proper way and whether if that means like you said sending someone a note and saying hey uh, you know what you're doing there is isn't really helping the cause i think that's great advice not only for somebody in the hunting industry but for every hunter out there you know if any of us see something out there take the time to talk to your fellow hunter your friend or whoever and maybe they didn't think about how other people might perceive this post or that photograph or what you said in that video you know yeah, the reality of it is, is that guy's decision to post the way he did affects my life and my career because it, 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 if it has a negative and adverse effect of what how hunting is perceived by even people within our sport, that affects our sport and that affects me. You know, it's, it's a selfish thing a lot of times, a lot of these posts that we do and, and different things. But we have to sit back and realize we're not just affecting our our lives or what people think of us. It's affecting me. You know, it's affecting those of us that, that look at it as as a lifestyle and a career. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and probably people listening are thinking, "Man, here goes Mark again talking about this topic because <laughs> I oh, talk about it a lot. This topic a lot before. Uh huh. But I just think it's so important. I mean, I just think that. You know, in today's world where we hunters are, you know, like less than 5% of the population in America, you know, we are at the mercy of the non-hunting general public. Unfortunately, you know, it's a privilege that we're able to go out there and hunt and fish and do these different things. And if, if the perception of everyone on the outside is that we are not doing things the right way or that what we do doesn't seem to be acceptable by their standards we're going to lose that privilege whether we we like that fact or not it's just kind of a reality so i just think it's very important that we're careful about how we're perceived and how we represent ourselves and um 
I guess I'm, I'll probably keep preaching it till the day this show goes down the tube. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's the thing is, you know, at the end of the day, all this could go away tomorrow, you know, and, mm-hmm. and in all likelihood, it probably will someday, you know. I mean, it's, 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 we just have, it's up to us to continue to fight the fight and doing the right things so that we can ensure that it doesn't, you know, yeah. but um, who knows? Absolutely. Well, uh, I'm going to try to pivot off of my, my, <laughs> steeple post here, whatever I am up on the, uh, my, my last thing I was kind of curious for you, Tim was what's, what's next for you? Like what's your next bucket list hunt? What haven't you done that you really still want to do? Um, I'd like to draw a sheep tag. I'd like to draw a mountain goat tag. Um, you know, that'd be, that'd be nice to do before I get old and older and fatter. Um, <laughs> I'm not one that's, that wants to take away from my kids' college fund to uh, to go and, and splurge on a sheep hunt. I'm just not going to do that. It's not that important to me. Um, so I'm just going to keep putting in for for hunts and doing what I can. Uh, I, I went on a Barbary sheep hunt this year for the first time. I'll, I'll probably go to New Zealand again. I'll, I'm hoping to get to Australia, you know, but there's, there's so many do-it-yourself opportunities with some great people all across the country and all across the world that, um, you know, there's a great community and opportunities a guy can go and hunt and experience different things without having to break the bank. I mean, that's, that's one thing that I've, I've really pride myself on is that, that I'm not spending any more on a hunt than Mark Canyon would on that same hunt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm doing more of those because of the, the career that I have, but I'm not out there booking hunts with outfitters and doing high dollar hunts because I want to up my badassery factor. I'm doing hunts that I would be doing as you know a middle-aged father would do anyway. So those are the things that I enjoy and that's what I'll continue to do, but hopefully I can, can expand expand on that a little bit. That's awesome. So, what about for the show? What, uh, where do you want to take things next? What's, what's in the future? I like the direction Solo Hunter has been. You know, um, last several years, I think we'll we'll continue down that road. Obviously, trying to do better at hunting and better at filming. Um, last year, I did a project with Prime and G Five, hosting a, a show for them that we did a, on Sportsman Channel and Pursuit and a little mini series. Hopefully, we'll be able to continue to do some of that because you know I've. I have a lot of passions in life. Uh, hunting is, is one of them, but there's a lot of other things too. Um, you know, if I can break 70 on my golf game this summer, I'll be <laughs> so, no, it's, it's, that's hunting is part of my life. It's not all of my life. And I'm grateful to have it, but there's a lot of things that I, that I'd like to continue to do as a, you know, a goal oriented person, not just a hunter. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm excited <laughs> to see, uh, the progression and see how things continue to grow and loving what you've been doing so far. So for, for people that want to either discover what you've been doing with solo hunter or get more of it, where can they find stuff online? So the website is probably the central location for everything as far as video and social media links. And that's uh, solohunter.com. So there's, there's two different website, you know, URLs a person can type in it's S O L O H N T R.com, or they can type in the solo hunter all spelled out.com. Um, or just Google solo hunter and I command it. I mean, it's, you, you will, you'll not, you'll not be able to not find it. <laughs> Perfect. Well, that's easy enough. I'll make sure to put links uh, in this blog post for anyone that wants to check out the website. And you're, you're across most social media platforms too, right? Yeah, yeah. So Instagram is kind of where where all social media starts with me. And then it kind of feeds into Facebook and 
Twitter just gets whatever's left over. Um, you know, it's like I say, social media is there to to uh, have the connection with those that, that like what we do, and so we'll continue to do that. Um, and then YouTube is is really also another kind of focus, just trying to get more videos out, more so than just the episodes that we have, trying to expand that. But you know, it's it's a Anytime you add another project, it's that much more time, that much more work. And it's got to make sense at the end of the day. I'm not in this to have the most eyeballs on Tim Burnett and to, to show how big of a, a stud Tim Burnett is. I, I'm in this, uh, you know, as a lifestyle and as, as a passion uh, as well as a business. Yeah, I think it's pretty awesome. Now, I think you've got – I know you have some of your episodes, and I'm not sure if you have all. Do you have all of your episodes available online through VHX or just – a certain number of them yeah so vhx only has two seasons the last two seasons season five and season six no does it no it only has season six on there that's right um youtube has the last three seasons of episodes with an exception of the last it's kind of confused the last six of this last fall so when you when you're on the networks, you're under contractual obligation not to release any episodes until a certain time frame because of the their dealings with with the network providers. So if you go on YouTube, we're up to I think episode eight of last fall, last season. So season six, episode eight is up there, and I'll be uploading episode nine here another week or so. Nice. Well, uh, definitely good stuff to check out. And what about the new season? When's that premiering? When should we be looking for that? The premiere is on Outdoor Channel June 28th. So the show is on every Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday mornings at 9.30 a.m. I think the network might have must have a vendetta out against me because they took away my evening time slots and gave me all mornings. So. Bummer. Yeah. Well, that's all right. We'll show them. We'll crush the ratings again and, and you know. People, people will find the show if they like it. They're going to find it no matter when it airs. But... You know, I'm I'm not one of the, I'm not a greasy wheel, and I'm not one of the favorites, so I don't get the the awesome time slots. But uh, hey, viewership is changing. You know, you'll yeah. see a lot, a lot more digital stuff going on. Yeah, and I think from everything I've seen, I think you're positioning yourself very well for the digital, uh, the move to digital that's happening more and more. That uh, people find the stuff they like and they enjoy. And from everything I've seen and heard, I think a lot of people are enjoying what you're putting out there. So uh, I think the digital stuff will continue to do well. I don't think people realize I've been on YouTube for almost 10 years now. So that's really, you know, it's been, digital has been the only constant since, since then pretty much. Yeah. Great stuff. Well, Tim, this has been, this has been fun. I I really enjoy this. I think I learned a few things that will help me this fall, which I appreciate. And uh, I think a lot of our listeners have too. So, so thanks for joining us. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Let's uh, let's definitely stay in touch and uh, hopefully we'll have some good stories to tell this season. Yeah, that sounds great. Good luck on your hunt. Thank you. You too. All right, so there you go. Before we shut it down, though, we do need to thank our partners who helped make this podcast possible. So big thanks to Sitka Gear, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Huntero Maps, Ozonics, Carbon Express, Maven Optics, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. And finally, thank you all for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed this one and maybe got the bug to head out on an adventure of your own. So until next time, thanks again and stay wired to hunt. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, 
you should check out the Weber Slate Rust Resistant Griddle. So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. This griddle heats evenly edge to edge, reaching all the way up to 500 degrees. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.